Before I start, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I am recording this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to another Unstress podcast. My name is Dr. Ron Ehrlich. Now, we today are continuing our journey through biochemistry. Now, you know, this is really the way the body works and I always think if things are going wrong, it always helps to uh, know why and also realise that it's not just a medication that will control the problem, but actually something has gone wrong at a biochemical level and we need to address that to restore the body's natural ability to heal itself. Now, throughout the summer series, we focused again, replaying some of our focuses on boosting natural immunity. And one could argue that almost every podcast I do is focused on that as well. And it, and it actually is, whether we're talking about environmental issues, whether we're talking about health issues, mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever, this is about boosting immune function, building resilience to deal with the stresses of our modern world. Well, today we're going to explore another nutrient. Now, we've talked about vitamin C and vitamin D and magnesium and zinc, and you've heard all of that. And and it's important to understand that none of these things occur in isolation. It's not just one supplement. It's actually why a nutrient-dense diet is so critically important and why what that actually means is food, be it either vegetable or, or animal, would should be raised, grown on a nutrient on on a healthy soil because it's ultimately the soils which provide the forty or fifty or sixty elements or nutrients that we need. So today we're going to be talking about an antioxidant that you may have heard about before, but it's worth revisiting. It's coenzyme Q10. Well, really a a derivative of that called ubiquinol. But I don't want to spoil it for you. My guest today is Gerald Quigley, and Gerald is a practicing community and I would say holistic pharmacist and also an accredited herbalist. Well known for his unique view of health from a holistic perspective. He's a very popular personality on radio and TV, and uh, he is a regular visitor on the House of Wellness radio and TV show where Gerald offers practical advice in an easy to understand format. I've known Gerald for many years and when I realised I had the opportunity to catch up with him, I wanted to share him with you. I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Gerald Quigley. Welcome to the show, Gerald. Thank you, Ron. Terrific to see you. Yes, it's lovely. When I heard we were going to be talking, I was so looking forward to catching up with you. You know, one of the things that we've explored on this podcast many times is the the importance of biochemistry, of how a cell actually functions, because when it doesn't function well, things seem to go go wrong. And that's a message I'm trying to encourage people to get their heads around. And an important part of a cell is the power pack. It's the important part of everything. And that's the mitochondria. I wondered if we might start with that. What is mitochondria? What is mitochondrial energy? Give us it in 101, layman's terms. Layman's terms. And it's funny, isn't it? We talk about energy and we just expect that it happens. We just expect that when we want to generate energy, no matter what age, even your age and my age, we just expect to be able to just put it together 
and do whatever we're going to do. But it's a little more complex than that. And what we don't realise is that so many of our vital organs, particularly our heart, relies on a constant and ongoing supply of energy. So in simple forms, we've got all the food groups, proteins and lipids and polysaccharides, all feeding into this mixing bowl. And out of that mixing bowl, various processes occur. And it's got, there's all sorts of names for that process. But it all heads down to the production of ATP. So ATP, if we think back to our school biology, it's the, it's the basis of energy in every cell. And therefore, the production of ATP has to be maintained, maximised, and particularly as we age, it has to be supported to its maximum efficiency within reason. So at 85, you might be able to do many things, but you, couldn't, you can't probably do the things that you might have been able to do at 25, if you and I can remember back that far. So, Gerald, you can't, you're making too many references to our, our, our age now. Come well, on, let's, let's stay on topic here, Gerald. We've been around a long time, Ron, you and I, and we've, we've, seen, oh, we've seen lots of developments in health where it becomes, in my view, so focused and over-technicalised that the basics are often missed. Mm. And this is pretty basic. As it's basic to have a battery in a car, it's basic to have an energy producer in our body. And logically, that starts with good nutrition. It starts with adequate sleep, management of stress, because they, amongst a number of other things, can impinge on the production of ATP. So we've got the cycle, the citric acid cycle, the mitochondrial respiratory respiratory chain. And in there is the production of ATP. And fundamental to that is coenzyme Q10. In coenzyme Q10, we've been talking about CoQ10 for a long, long time, and I'll shorten it to CoQ10. Hmm. So this is an enzyme, coenzyme, which is fundamental to the production of that ATP within the respiratory cycle. What we find is, though, that we're learning more about the role of coenzyme Q10, which just happens, it just is there. As we age, our levels tend to drop away, is why our energy levels often aren't quite what they used to be. So in all of this, we're looking at ATP, the the primary carrier of energy in every cell, not just some cells, every cell. So where there's a concentration of energy production, for example, in our heart, there's a lot of coenzyme Q10 stored and needed and therefore needs to be replaced constantly. It's probably why coenzyme Q10 is often referred to in cardiovascular health as being particularly important. Now, in an ideal world, we are told if you have the perfect diet, which I've actually never come across, then we should be able to get adequate levels of coenzyme Q10 from the food we eat. Now, sadly, this lipid-soluble enzyme or nutrient isn't really available in food. For me to get 100 milligram of coenzyme Q10 a day, Mm. I would need to eat 10 kilograms of broccoli, 1.6 kilogram of sardines, 
and we probably have to accompany this with a decent bottle of red, but three kilograms of beef wrong. Now, that is just not possible. So it's one of those puzzling nutrients that, that we can't just get from our food, unlike things like magnesium and calcium and these things that we talk about. And if you aim to get that in your food, you're doing particularly well because we're well away from that in the Australian or the Western diet, as you know. Hmm. So obviously supporting it with supplementation makes sense particularly when you consider how many factors can impinge on, first of all, our levels of CoQ10, and more particularly, the, the role that a, a special process called conversion helps in our body. So we've got CoQ10, and, we've, and, that's, and that's converted or, or reduced coenzyme Q10, which is called ubiquinol. The names can be confusing. Coenzyme Q10 is commonly called ubiquinone, but the reduced form is called ubiquinol, and it's important to differentiate them because they are completely different. The reduced form is very much more available, bypasses many of the little internal processes that require reduction. So if you take a coenzyme Q10 supplement, it has to be converted to a reduced form. Logically, if you take that reduced form already, which is now manufactured in a completely different and patented way, the reduced form is available basically as soon as you swallow it, as soon as you take it. I think as we get older, I know that as we get older, that conversion from ubiquinone to ubiquinol, and I know when you go into the store and you look at coenzyme Q10, which as you mentioned, is, is often recommended around heart health. Interestingly, we in the, in the dental world also feel that it has a positive role to play in gingival, in gum health, yes. periodontal health. And that's not surprising either, high energy area. But uh, as we get older, that can... And, and what I was saying was the coenzyme Q10 that you see often in supplements is of that ubiquinone level. Yes. Yes. And as we get older, that conversion becomes a little more challenging, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. And there are lots of things that can interfere with, and, and I, again, searched some of those yesterday because we're learning more about that conversion factor. We're trying to understand why people who take often large doses of coenzyme Q10 probably don't get the expected outcomes based on what they've read. And that might be because their ability to convert one to the other is not efficient. So mm. you've got things like ubiquinol. So we're talking here about the the the, reserve, the the reduced form. Levels of those of that can be taken away completely by things like certain medications, particularly the statins that we use to reduce cholesterol. Certainly oxidation, oxidation or aging is just something that tissues have to learn to cope with. Things like the deficiency of factors needed for that biosynthesis and conversion. So there's a few enzymes in there that are working away. If you genetically have issues in that regard, then that conversion factor will not happen. The conversion will be quite inefficient. And certainly disease states can affect our conversion rate and our ability to maintain adequate levels of the ubiquinol, the, the, the reduced form of the coenzyme Q10. Mm. Look, it's, it's exciting stuff because 
more generally speaking, how often these days do you meet someone and you ask how they are and they say, I'm just really tired, just really tired. And without going into a lot of their potential disease states, it's often about their ability to reduce energy at cellular level to actually get some energy back. And energy comes with vitality. Vitality comes with, in my view, and it's a, a long, a long um, uh, th- a bit of string here, but I think vitality comes with optimism. And certainly in today's world, particularly over the last couple of years, if ever we need vitality and optimism, the day is here because mm. we're not out of the woods yet. And here is a way of actually supporting efficient energy production in a perfectly legal and not illegal way because there's all sorts of things you can buy on the internet promising this. But here is a way of supporting our body to produce energy, particularly in organs that are needed. And there's a range of other health benefits that come along with ubiquinol as well. Now, you may, we'll come to those <clears throat> in a moment, but you mentioned statins as one thing that compromises. And I remember when statins first came out, they always used to recommend that you check liver function every three or four months, wasn't it? Yes, I remember those days. In fact, you, you were given a statin, you were given a liver function test run, then you were given a statin, and then in three or four months, you were asked to go back and have a liver enzyme test just to see whether your liver was tolerating the statin. Now, all of that's, of course, gone. We, we just use them, and, and we don't want to demonise statins. They play a role. But it's been well documented that there appears to be an interference in the levels of coenzyme Q10 because of very similar pathways within the liver. I think I even read once that when uh, one of these statins came off uh, patent, they were going to try and combine it with CoQ10 to repatent it or something I, like that. I remember that. I think that was a that was a, an effort somewhere along the line, but, but mm. maybe, you know, as a lot of good ideas, it fell mm. by the wayside. Another issue that we've heard a lot about is comorbidities, you know, the word comorbidities, and I, I'm kind of not maybe surprised, it is surprising that so many people in our society, I think I heard the statistic like at least half the population have one comorbidity and many have more than one. In fact, people that have suffered badly in this in this pandemic have had on the average, I think, three or four. So people are on a lot of medications, aren't they? Yes, they are. That's, and, and this is this is the way of the world at the moment, Ron. I could facetiously say it's a pill for every ill, but mm. there's no doubt if we can, the opportunities we get, particularly you get and I get and experts like um, uh, Dr. Ross Walker, if we can help educate people that by becoming empowered about their own health and understanding that diabetes necessarily doesn't kill you, But if it's left untreated or treated carelessly, in fact, I read yesterday where in diabetes in Australia, amputations are actually the levels of of amputations are rising. Now, in Australia in 2022, that's an outrageous statistic, outrageous, because we don't educate people about it. And I sadly hear from people that are given uh, new insulin pens and things, and they email me and say, how do I use this damn thing? Well, goodness me. They should never have been allowed to walk out of a pharmacy without complete demonstration of how to use it and and what it's all about and the role that it plays. And every disease seems to come with that same laissez-faire attitude. If I take the pill, everything will be okay. Remember, and 
you know, I've seen male patients in my clinic who would take the statin for three months before their next doctor's visit. So the doctor would say, well done, they're working, aren't they? And then as soon as they got out of the surgery, they put them to one side again. Mm. So we need to educate much more readily patients that are using medications to use them correctly because if they really use them correctly, there's a chance, and we see it in diabetes, there's a chance their levels can be reduced. And one day with statins, we know that as we age, we actually need cholesterol to function efficiently. And many people find that as they age, they actually come off their statins. So becoming, but becoming empowered and asking questions often gives wonderful outcomes. Well, I, I loved your, before we came on, you, you talking about the power of education and the importance of it, which is what this podcast is all, all about as well. I remember when we first met, Gerald, you were described as a holistic pharmacist and, of course, as a holistic dentist. I know I often get asked, what does that mean? But let's just take a step, a little bit step back here because your background is pharmacy and you're a herbalist as well. And I walk into pharmacies now and I think, God, you'd have to really be a holistic. Tell us what a holistic pharmacist. Look, I think that definition, like a holistic dentist, Ron, I think it is in the power of the mind of the person that asks you because no matter Mm -hmm. how you try and explain it, they think you're a bit wacko. Mm -hmm. Uh, They think that that you should be limited to appearing in a white coat and doing what you do as as I think sometimes. But I'm I'm not keen on on actually being put into a particular pigeonhole. We are all health practitioners. And as time goes by, there are more and more Australians who want to move from the illness side of the equation into a wellness side of the equation. And I would contend that we don't have a health system here. We have an illness system here. And we both come across many people that are okay and concerned about something developing, but they're often reassured Once that develops, then we'll throw everything at it and we'll fix it. And there's very little advice given to minimise the risk of particular things developing. So that's the market, the demographic I'm in. And there is a lot of worried well Australians who feel that probably they're almost missing out because they don't have diabetes, elevated blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, chronic reflux, all these things that all their mates have got. And they think, well, maybe... Maybe all this stuff's being missed, but in fact, it's not. They're just a healthier individual. So I take the role that if you've got medicines, that's wonderful. But many of them will deplete nutrients. Many of them, in fact, have that law of unintended consequences associated with them. And here is a classic that so many things, when you look at the role of ubiquinol in the human body, there are so many aspects of that which can interplay with medications that are taking and with positive outcomes. And you mentioned gingivitis before. There is a classic. If you've got some gum issues, for heaven's sake, get some advice about ubiquinol because it's been clinically proven over and over again. It plays a role because guess what? Your gums and your heart, there's a connection. Now we're hearing a lot about that. I've often described, I've often defined holistic as a dentist, as a dentist with attitude. There you go. Uh, I'm surprised, Ron. You've got attitude. (laughs) But uh, you mentioned three kilos of beef and two kilos of sardines. But come on, there must be some foods that contain ubiquinol. Oh, they do. That we can consume on a regular basis. Yeah, but there's Um, not enough, Ron. Not enough. There's really not enough. And you can consume them, heavens above. Where would we be? 
without a decent steak and uh, and a glass of red wine. So, but you know, you might get a half a milligram of ubiquinol, and that's okay. But we're talking here about clinically proven and specific dosages for an unexpected and clinically proven, for an expected and clinically proven outcome. And that's where so many of these nutrients as time goes by. We've probably been underdosing. In fact, when when coenzyme Q10 first came on the market, in Australia we were prescribing 150 milligram, probably started off 50 milligram, 150 milligram. In particularly in where a lot of the research started, which was in Japan, uh, they were prescribing 600 milligram, which the experts here were quite surprised at. Hmm. Not only does it show the safety of the particular nutrient, but it probably shows that even then we were probably underdosing. And that's where that conversion rate, we don't have a, a clinically proven 150 milligram of coenzyme Q, Q10 equals a certain amount of ubiquinol, but it is estimated that there's probably a four plus potency change that 150 milligram of coenzyme Q10 compared to 150 milligram of ubiquinol, that once the conversion has happened, that ubiquinol already converted is giving us about five or 600 milligram of coenzyme Q10 in our body. So there is, there is that estimation. There's not definitive evidence yet, but it will happen. Not that mm. it needs to be proven, but to satisfy so many people that say, oh, well, why is one more effective as why of one more why we why would we take coq10 now ubiquinone when we know the more active form is ubiquinol should we not just be going straight what is that made it redundant i mean i know this distinction has come out in the last i don't know what few years five yeah, years yeah, three four or five years yeah. yes oh look and that's that really is up to the individual there are some yeah. people that feel that they're getting the benefits from coenzyme q10 so that's the, the, the solid state form, and that's okay. But if we have the comorbidities we mentioned, or if we want specific clinical outcomes, then I think we owe it. In fact, I would insist that our patients would expect to be told that there is a reduced form available and the clinically proven benefits are probably more evident. But we're in a free world. I mean, you, you can talk about the two some people will be happy with one to see how they go. But in the world of nutrition, um, it's about education. And we, we said that before. When you say to someone, you should take this, there's a bit of feed, a bit of pushback straight away often, depending how the message is delivered. Hmm. If you explain there are two options, one will do this, but this other one will probably do it better then I think most people would probably choose that other option. And what are those What are those doses that we are now taking or being recommended to take with ubiquinol? Uh, look, I prescribe for my patients 300 milligram of ubiquinol each morning and I get wonderful feedback. For various reasons, and often can be an economical reason, people say, well, look, I'm happy with 150 milligram. That's okay. Because at least you're providing your body and your energy production chain with the fuel that it needs to really keep efficiently working. So it's an individual thing. But for people with specific clinical presentations, so the person with chronic dry eye, the person with having some conception issues from a sperm health perspective, the person who's taking high-dose statins, 
the person who is an elite athlete who is finding that fatigue is really getting them down, the person that's working in a highly stressed environment, we might look at nurses at the moment, there's been clinical evidence overseas, clinical trials showing that groups of nurses supported with ubiquinol compared to those not taking it are less stressed, sleep better and cope with their, their demanding jobs far better. So maybe the government should be supplying ubiquinol to nurses because they're really under the pump at the moment and uh, and, and really under-resourced and underappreciated as well probably. Well, I know, I know it's interesting you should say maybe we should supply it to nurses because I know when this pandemic started and I was at the time president of the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, we wrote letters through Professor Ian Brighthope, wrote letters to suggest that perhaps vitamin D and zinc also had an important role to play. What do you think of those? Oh, fundamental. Fundamental. Uh, very early in the piece, Ron, I read a paper that came out of Spain where they COVID hospital uh, full of people mm-hmm. and they did blood tests on every one of them and every single person had subclinical levels of vitamin D. Well, for heaven's sake, there's, there's not a... If that's not an asso- a medical association of issues, what is? Mm-hmm. And even now, I, I I feel sorry for people who don't understand the role of vitamin D and zinc and vitamin C for that matter. To me, they're basic immunes. And I addressed a group of people in the real estate industry yesterday, a hundred and something of them. And I said, here are the basics of maintaining your wellness and it's keeping your immune system functioning. And it's just those things, D3. Mm-hmm. D3 a couple a day, uh, 50 milligram of elemental zinc, 30 milligram, whatever you're comfortable with, Mm. and 500 to 1,000 milligram vitamin C. It's easy. Get some advice. No issues. Just do it. Become empowered, for heaven's sake. Don't Mm. wait for what the system says is going to get you. Do something about it. Yeah, I I must admit, when the pandemic started, I, I saw it as an incredible opportunity, an incredible opportunity because we had a global community focused on health like never before and uh, rather than hide behind the timelines of chronic disease, because heart disease takes tens of years to develop and cancers too and autoimmune, Mm -hmm. but this was happening quickly and and comorbidities made you more susceptible. What a great time to focus on health. I've just been a little disappointed that public health hasn't you were talking about an ill health system, not a healthcare system. I don't know. Were you frustrated by that, Gerald? Oh, totally. Uh, and I get frustrated within. Imagine in an average pharmacy how many people present in a day with prescriptions for chronic disease. Mm. Even some sort of printed elementary immune support advice to me is logical, professionally responsible. In fact, I think it's irresponsible not to offer that, but maybe I'm a little bit right-wing about that because I think people should be offered the information, whether they, this gets back to that education. Don't leave it to the stage where you've got to take it, where, you know, you go along, you have a blood test and your D levels are are 20 and they should be 100 and someone says, you've got to take three or four capsules a day to get your levels back up there. Don't wait for that. Just have a couple each day to maintain your levels up where they should be. Mm-hmm. Just, it makes sense, but look, simplicity has just gone out the window, yeah. Ron, we know that. Gerald, it's an opportunity also to ask you about pharmacies because in my lifetime, and I'm sure in yours too, this, the, 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 the appearance of a pharmacy when you walk in has changed so much. I mean, 
you would have been compounding at the beginning of your career, would you not? Is that Um, uh, compounding was, and we didn't even have the official title, Ron. We most prescriptions came in that required preparation. It might have been mixtures or powders. Certainly, the tableted form was just before um, my time and Philippa's time, my wife pharmacist. But but we were doing that all. That was just the way of the world at that stage. And and I think we had less. We had practically we never had an interaction. We never had an adverse effect other than someone whinging about the taste of a mixture and we just used to tell them to harden up and just have it because didn't your mother say if it tastes poorly, then it's obviously doing something good. Just get over it. Now, of course, we load everything with sugar. But, yes, look, I think, Ron, as time goes by, there will be a differentiation within the store. And I remember the, the, the examples in the US where there are big mega stores, but there is a professional services part which is staffed by pharmacists. And the only disappointing part there is I think there should be a pharmacist on the floor. There should be a pharmacist monitoring what's happening out there in retail land to make sure people, first of all, able to seek his or her advice and guidance and perhaps don't necessarily buy things that, that aren't appropriate because there's always that risk. And without being just just almost walking around with a sign saying, I'm a pharmacist, ask me. Mm-hmm. Well, how simple is that? But I know that we've used the word compounding and we've used it because you and I both know what it means, but we probably should remind our listener yes. what compounding actually was or is still Com- to this day. Compounding was tailor-made medicine before individualised medicine became sexy and fashionable. So you went to your doctor and he listened to your symptom, listened to your story, um, and, he, and he didn't type on a keyboard. He actually looked you in the eye, listened, wrote a few notes, handed you a prescription, and then you took it to the pharmacy where something was put together specifically for you and perhaps at a later stage changed. Now, that's the principle we use in herbal medicine, and and that's a fundamental Mm. and underlying aspect of that. So that, for various reasons, and we follow the US, that was thrown out because it's easier to put it all in a pill and people don't like taking mixtures and all sorts of things. But there is a swing back now, Ron. I Mm. think there's a swing back. People wanting to take more gentle options, and there is a clear difference, and I'll explain that. So if you want to synthetically change something, and let's look at something way up there. Let's look at period pain. You can take something synthetic for period pain, which will alter your hormone levels completely. Now, that sometimes works out, sometimes it doesn't. You can take a herbal option, particularly one with the clinical evidence to support the claim, which will actually balance your own hormone levels. And over time, not tomorrow or the next day, but over time, six weeks, you'll find that a lot of the issues that you as a young woman might be facing with all the issues of pain, sugar craving, mood swings, all those things, they actually start to balance out and life gets better. It's a bit simple, but Mm. it works. Mm. Another thing that changed, I remember being in Europe probably 15 or 20 years ago and I'd walk into a pharmacy in, 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 in the Netherlands or Germany or something and you'd walk in and it would be a cornucopia of vitamins, minerals, homeopathy, herbs. And I thought, wow, our Australian pharmacies aren't like that, but now they are. That raises another area for a pharmacist to be familiar with because you have got literally 
hundreds of supplements, that's another challenge for a pharmacist in today's world, isn't it? Yes, it is. But there's no need to back away from that because mm. often what you as a pharmacist might suggest based on your professional expertise, your prescribing personality, all sorts of other reasons, completely overwhelmed by something that has been seen on television or read in a magazine, or so many experts these days, which might be the, the checkout girl at the, at the supermarket who just gives a bit of health advice. They can make often suggestions, which many people appear as gospel, and I'm not, they do a wonderful job, but I think it's horses for courses. Look, in all of that, and, and I remember walking into a pharmacy about that same time, maybe 12 years ago, in Italy, and there were a few people sitting around, and I walked in, and this lovely lady, mature lady in a white coat, uh, came and said, can I help you, sir? And I said, look, I'm a, I'm a pharmacist from Melbourne, Australia, and I want to speak to that pharmacist up there. She said, in the best English, certainly, sir, take a seat down there just where there's a vacant chair, and in time, our pharmacist, when she's helped these other people, will come and see you. And I thought, ooh, there you go. Okay. There you go. But it's the expectation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. the expectation. And what do you say to so-called experts who say there is no evidence to support all this supplementation or herbal medicine? What do you say to so-called experts? And you, you realise I'm prefacing them with so-called experts. What do you say to that? Oh, look, I could just facetiously say get a life, mate. The, the evidence, and that's, a, that's a, a word which is bandied around, isn't it? And often in the community we don't give that word enough respect. And I often see, and you can take a number of different herbs that claims on bottles and claims that are, are advertised are actually stolen from an actual clinically proven extract and, you know, they just attach the claims to it. And then you obviously, if you were choosing um, a steak restaurant that you can take me to next time we catch up, uh, someone that says a paddock to plate uh, has a probably more attractive sound than someone who just buys bulk meat and then prepares it in some way. And similarly, I've always been of the philosophy that the companies that do a paddock to bottle, and there's many European companies that actually have uh, contract growers that they will only use to make sure that all the steps along the way are actually complied to, to make sure that their extracts are what they are supposed to be. And so there's... Look, I think, and I've pleaded with pharmacy students who I, I used to give um, talks to often, but I think I was considered a bit of a renegade, Ron, so I don't do that these days. But I remember a young Indian pharmacy student, so she, she, yeah, she had a degree and there was just doing the next stage. And she said to me, look, I, I, I'd love to get involved. And, and often I get asked, what weekend course can I do to become a... You put that sort of comment to one side because I, like you, probably learn something every day that I mm. didn't know. And you think, where am I going to store this in my brain? And I said to this young kid, um, now you're from India. She said, yes. And I said, so you're all aware of Ayurvedic medicine? Yes, I am. My, my parents use it. My grandparents use it. And I said to her, why don't you become a pharmacist with a specialty in Ayurvedic medicine. And her eyes lit up, just lit up mm. and thought, and I just thought, just go away and think about it. Mm. Use an opportunity. And guess what? Ayurveda now is starting to creep back into general wellness 
Mm. It's another modality, a wonderful modality. I've done some studies in that. Just a, a wonderful, wonderful modality. Good luck to her. I hope she's yeah. successful wherever she is. We've become so pill for the ill orientated. And I think this idea that if it's not a pharmaceutical product, it doesn't have a place in our health. I mean, we've literally become so brainwashed about that. And you draw on Ayurvedic, well, it has, three, I think, three or 4,000 year tradition there. So, you know, to, I'll be interested to see whether our current pharmaceutical model is around in two or 3,000 years' time. Well, you and I won't be here, but when you consider what some of the powerful medicines are, which often come on the market, Ron, and when you look at their mode of action and Mind you, I can class paracetamol in that. When you look up the Australian Medicines Handbook, which is on my office desk here, and you look up the mode of action of paracetamol, it clearly says not understood. Yes. So here we've got we've got a medicine which is the most potent liver toxic drug on the market, freely available without prescription, without restriction in most places, and we don't know how it works. And yet people say, "Oh, I can't take that because I don't understand how it works." For mm. heaven's sake. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's Gerald, always great to talk to you. And I, before we go, I just want to ask you one question. Standing, taking a step back from your role as a holistic pharmacist, herbalist, educator, because we're all on a health journey through this in in this modern world as individuals, not just as health practitioners. What do you think the biggest challenge is for an individual on that journey? I think the biggest challenge is not to get swept up in the ferris wheel of medications and we know that there is an automatic cascade and and we we need to teach people about quite simply inflammation now we i mentioned it before inflammation or aging so we if we become inflamed and because we become inflamed our joints start to play up next our blood vessels start to play up so we've got hypertension then our pancreas starts becoming inflamed and we've got diabetes. If we can explain to people that if they had better food options and, and not this anti-inflammatory diet, that, that puts too many things in a, in a pigeonhole, but maximising the good stuff that we eat, minimising the bad stuff that we eat, surrounding yourself with positive friends, and keeping well away from those that unload on you, which is hard to do in health, but really, and keeping really well socially connected. I think the saddest thing, and I watched my own mum at 94, who was in low care, fading away because there's no social contact. Now, that to me should have been initiated right at the start. The vulnerable people who have been around and we owe so much to, let's look after them. You young people, I reckon you can cope with this. Um, let's just do what we can and let's educate you about the benefits of a vaccination so that you will, in fact, potentially protect that more vulnerable group over there. We used to do it back in the old days. We don't do it now. We, we threaten, cajole, and I think the, the message, sadly, is being very mixed. So get involved in your health. Get involved. Focus on wellness, not on illness. Just because you've got a bit of an aching knee, it's not necessarily osteoarthritis or all the other things. It probably means you've overworked your knee. Have a look at that, but keep the exercise going. We could go on for hours, Ron. Well, I wish we could. But listen, you mentioned the connection, and it's been great to connect again with you, Gerald. Always terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ron. Bye. 
Well, there it is, another nutrient. And that is why we talk about nutrient density in foods, because within natural foods, unprocessed foods, foods that are grown in healthy soils, there are the nutrients and the ability to make nutrients in the body. And I know that uh, Gerald was talking about eating three kilos of meat or how many tins of sardines to achieve that. And I think there are challenges in our modern world in getting the adequate nutrients, particularly if you are not feeling as well as you could. And energy levels are important. Mitochondrial function is critical. I mean, there are Mitochondria are those little organelles inside the cells which provide us with the energy. And interestingly, Gerald was talking about ATP. ATP is the unit of energy produced in mitochondria. And when your mitochondria go through aerobic metabolism, your mitochondria will produce, say, 36 ATP molecules. When you are not exercising, when your body's functioning functioning on an anaerobic level, then you will only produce two ATP. So this is why exercise is so important and why a nutrient-dense diet is so important because when you are functioning optimally in an aerobic metabolic way, your body is producing all those ATPs that it potentially could. What's interesting also is how this links into sleep. Because when we've talked about sleep, there are two things which determine how we sleep at night. And, and one of them is called a sleep pressure, and the other is called a, and the other factor is circadian rhythm. And sleep pressure, so circadian rhythm we've dealt with in a few podcasts, and it's all about how we relate to the sun, to the day and night, the effect that um, artificial light has and computers and screens have on our circadian rhythm. That's one thing. But the sleep pressure is something we will do a whole program on, but here's the summary of it. Sleep pressure is about a buildup of a chemical in the body, and guess what that chemical is? Adenosine. And remember, ATP is adenosine triphosphate. So this is why a holistic view of health is so important, because on the one hand, we're talking about nutrients and the biochemistry of the body producing ATP. You've been told that going out and doing exercise, aerobic exercise, actually just moving, walking is, is good for you because you produce more ATP, giving you more energy. And as a waste product of that, we've got adenosine building up each and every day from the moment you wake up adenosine starts to build up. And that's why as it builds up, you become more tired. And that is what is referred to as sleep pressure. So there's a link between nutrients, exercise and sleep and the quality of sleep. Look, this is what makes health so interesting and enjoyable. And as I've often said, the more you learn about it, the more you realise you have to learn about it. And that's a good thing. That's exciting. And that's what this podcast is all about. I hope you found that enjoyable. I hope you found that informative. There is so much going on. Don't forget to check out our website. And don't forget to look for the Holistic Health Institute, which is the producer of this podcast and has been from the very beginning in the background, but it has stepped forward and is now producing some great online programs. So look out for those. Hope this finds you well. Until next time, this is Dr. Ron Early. Be well. 
This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health and related subjects. The content is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or as a substitute for care by a qualified medical practitioner. If you or any other person has a medical concern, he or she should consult with an appropriately qualified medical practitioner. Guests who speak in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions.